Near the end of his life, the Apostle Paul wrote to a young man whom he loved dearly, a man who had been his son in the gospel because he had converted this young man. And he wrote to him to encourage him with exhortations, great exhortations, with some warnings, and with a heart filled to overflowing with love for this young faithful soldier of Christ. And that soldier was Timothy. And in his first and second epistles to Timothy, he wrote to encourage him and to strengthen him at a time when it would have been very easy for Paul to have been conducting a self-pity party, if you will, because of the circumstances in which he found himself. He wrote the first epistle to Timothy in his first imprisonment. The second was written at a time when it became evident that he would not be freed. And tradition tells us that indeed, perhaps not very long after he penned these words which were his last in the New Testament, that he was martyred under the rule of Nero, who was emperor of Rome at that time. And while Paul, facing that kind of end to his life, could have been so consumed with what was happening to him, he was so much concerned with Timothy. And he wrote these wonderful epistles to his faithful son in the gospel with his welfare in mind. In the second letter, the last that he would write, in chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, he issued a charge. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn away their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But what about you, Timothy? But you, verse 5, you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. What's happening to me, Paul says, verse 6, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, alluding to the, the drink offering that was poured upon the sacrifice as the final act in those sacrificial rites that were a part of the old law. He simply uses that as a figure concerning his own life. It's being poured out even as I write, in other words. The time of my departure is at hand. He knew that it was imminent. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. But he says, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now notice the next request. He pleads with Timothy to come to him. 
He wanted that companionship during his last days. He didn't know how long those days would be, how many of those days he would have left. But he very desperately wanted to see his son in the gospel at least one last time. And so he urged him to be diligent, verse 9, to come to me quickly, he says. Come to me quickly. And then he added, for Demas has forsaken me. On what basis? Out of a love for the world, having loved this present world. He has departed for Thessalonica. Then he mentions Crescens, who has departed for Galatia, and Titus for Dalmatia. He does not indicate that these two men left in terms of apostatizing. He only specifically says that Demas has. It may have been that they had simply moved on to fields of labor because we're simply not told anything negative about them, only about Demas. But then he adds that only Luke is with me. And then he gives an interesting and significant admonition concerning Mark. John Mark, remember, with whom Paul had been very dissatisfied back after that first missionary journey with Barnabas. And when Mark had turned back from them and they were ready for that second missionary journey, Paul did not want to take Mark with them. Barnabas did. But Mark had obviously proved himself to Paul. Obviously he had. And he said, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Then he mentions Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. But now notice verse 13. Bring the cloak, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come. And the books, especially the parchments. That is an interesting request. Bring the books, especially the parchments, and the cloak that I left at Troas with, with Carpus. Why did he leave his cloak at Troas? Some have speculated that, that he was arrested there and uh, brought to Rome and that uh, his belongings um, were left behind because of the swiftness with which he was arrested, but that's sheer speculation. There's no, no knowledge of that at all, nothing in Scripture to indicate that at all. But for some reason, his cloak was not with him. Think about that cloak with me for a moment. Think about what that cloak had been through. What a cloak it was. It had been damp with the salty brine of the Mediterranean from his journeys on the sea. It was a cloak that had been wet from the tears that he shed over the brethren and the church in various places as he warned and wept over them as he on more than one occasion mentioned in both the Philippian letter I've told you often about these false teachers, and I tell you now, even weeping, that cloak was stained with the tears that he had shed over false brethren. To the elders at Ephesus, when he called them to himself at Miletus, he said, you know that for the space of three years I did not cease to warn every one of you night and day with tears. That cloak, wet with the tears, shed over the brethren in the church in various places. It was a cloak that had been soiled with the dust of many, many travels in proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And it was a cloak that had been stained with his own blood, blood from the many beatings that he had endured for the cause of Christ. And he wanted that cloak, 
during that last time because winter was coming. In fact, just a few verses later, and we'll notice that in more detail shortly, verse 21, he says, Do your utmost to come before winter. You imagine that Roman prison had a good heating system? No. It would have been cold and damp. And that cloak would have been helpful. It's been suggested it was much like a poncho, as we call those, uh, with a hole in the middle of the garment that draped over the body. That's what's been suggested as to the type of cloak that it would have been. But oh, what that cloak had seen. Oh, what that cloak had been through. And his plea to Timothy was, I need you to come. Please give diligence to come to me quickly. And verse 21, to come before winter. How do you think Timothy reacted to this plea? Oh, I don't have any doubt that he reacted promptly. No doubt whatsoever. Knowing all what we know about Timothy and what we read about him and his faithfulness, to the Lord and his faithfulness to his father in the gospel and his love for his father in the gospel. There's no doubt that he got Paul's belongings from Troas as quickly as he could, that he booked immediate passage to Rome on the first ship that he could find, that when he got there he raced up the Appian Way to the gates of that prison. And when the prison doors were opened, he embraced the man whom he loved so dearly and no doubt he comforted Paul and felt great loss after Paul was martyred. There might be a modern-day Timothy who might have reacted by saying, well, you know, I've got some private matters to attend to before I can do that. I've got some relatives who've just come to town. I've been sick, and I really just don't feel like going right now, but maybe when I feel a little better, I'll, I'll go. Or I've got some tickets to the Olympic Games, and you know how important uh, that is or I'll let someone else go. Or even after finally deciding to go, the modern-day Timothy might have picked up the cloak and the books and missed the first boat, had to wait until April to catch the next one. And then upon arriving, ambling up the Appian Way to the prison and realizing Paul's not there. He's not there. And so... The modern-day Timothy goes to the faithful Christians' houses and inquires, and they tell him, Timothy, Paul is dead. Paul's dead. Where were you? You see, this Timothy missed his opportunity. But I have no doubt whatsoever that the Timothy of the Scripture did not miss his opportunity. And that when Paul said, come before winter, that he came. You know, winter is coming, isn't it? Literally, it's coming. If you went outside this morning, you know it's coming. It's coming. And it was coming for Paul, not only in the literal sense of the season, but it was coming in terms of closing the book on his life. And speaking of books, what were these books? What were these parchments? Your guess is as good as mine. I have no idea what they were. Nor does anyone living, or who has lived, know, really, 
from what I have studied on it, there is absolutely no way to know exactly what they were. Some have suggested it was the Greek uh, copy of the Septuagint, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that Paul wanted, wanted that Greek uh, translation, that the parchments may have just simply been parchments uh, upon which he would actually write, or parchments that he had already written on. Maybe some have suggested the original manuscripts of some of the New Testament books. All of that is sheer speculation. But he wanted them for some reason. They were of value to him and used to him, whatever they were. And whatever they were, it still suggests to us the importance of, of study. It does suggest to us the importance of having that which we must have if we are going to be pleasing to God. Paul was an inspired apostle. I realize that, but we're not. And we do need the books. We do need the parchments, as it were. We need the Word of God. And without it, without it, there's no hope for any of us. Study to show yourself approved. Give diligence to show yourself approved to God. As he wrote elsewhere to Timothy. But I want you to think with me for a few moments in the latter part of our study about how our lives can be likened to the seasons of the year. Winter's coming. Winter's coming. Well, what about the seasons of the year as we think about those seasons in relation to our lives? Spring would be youth, obviously, wouldn't it? Springtime. What a wonderful time. It's the time when things are beginning to, to blossom. And it's the time when things are beginning to blossom for, for our young people. Their lives are ahead of them. They have their whole lives ahead of them. But it is also a time, not only in those teenage years, but well before those years, when, when it is the time for training of those young people. When it is the time where the parents, and when the parents of those young people, need to be bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, in those earliest possible years, because they can learn so much even at the earliest age about God and about the fact that the Bible is the Word of God. Oh, the Bible has a great deal to say about the responsibility that we have as parents to bring up our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6, 4, to train them as they need to be trained. But then summer comes, and summer is, is that vital time in life. That vital time when the green years are there, when we ought to be thinking about giving our lives to the Lord at the earliest accountable age so that we can spend as many years as possible in service to God. It's not a time for procrastination. It's a time for obedience. It's a time to give ourselves completely to God and to Christ in obedience to the gospel as we reach that age of accountability, as hopefully our young people blossom into those green years having been trained in the springtime of life to be ready and eager and willing to give themselves completely to the Lord and to serve Him for as long as they have. And then autumn comes. And autumn... Many of us are familiar with autumn, aren't we? Because that's when age begins to somewhat take its toll. That's when the hairs begin to turn gray as the leaves turn to brown and gold, or as the hairs turn loose 
as the leaves turn loose and fall to the ground. <laughs> Pick your analogy. <laughs> but we know that that is, uh, that is the autumn. That is the autumn. And you know, you think about it as you get older that you have so little time left if you really stop to think about it. And I suggest you do stop to think about it. Not that you agonize about it, but that you at least be cognizant of how little, precious little time there is in, in the autumn of life. Because winter is coming. Winter is coming. As Paul knew winter was coming and as he admonished Timothy, please come to me and come before winter. Winter is that cold, chilling hand of death. That cold, chilling hand of death that takes all of us generally before we're ready to go in terms of, of uh, wanting to stay a little longer, wanting to be with family a little longer, having some things we'd like to achieve or accomplish. But winter comes and opportunity then is passed. And our destiny is sealed. It's appointed unto men to die once. And after this, the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. That's winter. That's winter when there is no more opportunity. Because death enters the picture. But you know, we've talked about spring and summer and autumn. But all of us, all of us in a sense, all of us, no matter what the age, all of us are in the autumn of life in this sense in the sense that winter could be upon us at any time. Because as we have often said, young people have no assurance if they're in spring or if they're in summer that there will be years and years and years. We simply do not know that, nor do we have that assurance. And we are reminded from time to time that we should not, should not count on years and years more on this earth when young people die, as young Tate Williams recently, about whom we spoke in the tragic car accident. His life ahead of him, planning to go to Memphis School of Preaching, already doing preaching, so much to offer, so much talent, so much ability, snuffed out, gone, at a very young age. He was in the autumn of life and did not realize it. But thankfully, he was prepared for winter. Even at that young age, he was prepared for winter. And so must we be prepared for winter, regardless, regardless of where we are in life. What is your life? Remember James asked, it's a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And so we need to see the urgency that accompanies the autumn, and the opportunities that autumn affords us that will be gone when winter comes. Come before winter. Come before winter. And take advantage of the opportunity to give a smile to someone or a word of, of comfort, realizing the importance of, of taking advantage of those opportunities to say, to say something that will be a word fitly spoken, like apples of gold in settings of silver, as the wise man stated in Proverbs 25, 11. Or as he elsewhere wrote, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools 
pours forth foolishness. The autumn of life is a time to take the opportunity to weigh our words and to use our words to encourage others. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, again, the wise man wrote, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. You want to break the spirit of someone? You can do it in a heartbeat, can't you? Well, you can do it in a word, we should say. You can do it in a word. Let autumn be the time of opportunity to give that smile to someone, to give that word of comfort. Let the autumn of life be an opportunity to give a word of love and appreciation to those who are the closest to us, especially to, to parents and parents to children, for us to never lose sight of the importance of expressing our love for those who are closest to us. How many statements of regret have been uttered after parents and other loved ones have died when it's too late. Let's make sure that we don't squander those opportunities to express and to demonstrate that love. The Scriptures do teach us to honor fathers and mothers, and the Scriptures teach us as parents to bring up our children, as we've already alluded to, in the training and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6 and verse 4. There are many parents, tragically, in our world, who will live to regret the day that they fail to exercise proper discipline, that they fail to say no to improper requests from their children. I'm reminded of what Leroy Dedman in his excellent segment, Leaving a Legacy on Good News Today, mentioned recently, and you may have seen it. Remember, he dealt with one segment there about no and how sometimes God says no, and he used that illustration of the woman he saw with her child in Walmart, and the child was pitching a fit, as we used to say in Smithville, you, pitching a fit. Pitching a fit because he could not have the toy that his mother had refused him. You can't have that. She said no, and he pitched a fit and kept pitching a fit. And Leroy was observing it, and he said, you know, I wanted to just pick that child up and lift him up and say, do you not understand the meaning of the word no? But he didn't do that, thankfully. <laughs> but then the mother gave the child the toy. And then Leroy said, I wanted to pick her up and hold her up and say, do you not understand the meaning of the word no? <laughs> she gave in. She gave in. Well, maybe that's not as significant a matter as far as giving in in relation to a toy. But there are some significant matters about which we dare not give in as parents and should not, and if we do, we will live to regret it. An opportunity also in autumn to give the gospel to the lost is something that we must take very, very seriously. We must understand and appreciate the urgency of getting the gospel to a lost and dying world. Why don't we always see that urgency? as a whole, because we treat the lost as if they're not lost many times. And one day we'll regret our lack of effort. Now, I don't believe I'm speaking to a group of people who have that, uh, have that concept of the lost. I believe for the most part, hopefully completely, I'm speaking to a group of people who see the urgency of getting the gospel to the lost and understand that they are lost. But we must never lose sight 
of the urgency with which we approach that God-given privilege, not just a task or a charge, but the God-given God -given privilege to get the gospel of the lost. Remember some of the last things on Paul's mind as he wrote these words to Timothy in the last epistle were what? I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. Do what, Timothy? Preach the Word. Be ready when? In season and out of season. At all times, be urgent about taking advantage of opportunities to get the gospel to a lost and dying world. And be urgent about the opportunity to show your love for the Lord by laboring for the Lord. Not by what you say and not merely by your presence in worship. Because the church is not just a worshiping institution, it's a working institution. Therefore, the autumn of life is a time to show our love for the Lord by laboring, motivated by love. John 14, 15, Jesus summarized it so beautifully. If you love me, keep my commandments. The American Standard says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love, you'll keep. If you're not keeping, you don't love. That's all I can get out of that. It has to be that way, doesn't it? That's what the Lord said. You can claim you love me, but if you're not keeping my commandments, you don't love me. And you remember the illustration I used about the story of the Pentecostal preacher who was walking the aisles and asking everyone in a fevered kind of uh, situation there in an assembly to stand up if you love Jesus, and everyone stood up, stood up except a young man near the back, and the preacher seeing him thought maybe he didn't hear him, and he moved on uh, up the aisle and said, and I said, now if you love Jesus, stand up. And the young man still remained seated. And so finally he walked up right beside him, stood beside him and said, if you love Jesus, stand up. And he still remained seated, and finally he just addressed him. Son, didn't you hear me? Don't you love Jesus? And the young man said, no, I don't, because I read in my Bible that if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I know I'm not keeping His commandments, so I cannot stand up. And that was honesty. That was a scriptural response. Because Jesus did say, if you love me, keep my commandments. Do you love me? Then keep my commandments. Come before winter. That's an admonition that was important to Paul in this context where he needed his son in the gospel with him. But come before winter is an admonition that certainly is crucial to all of us who are living today to make sure, to make sure that we have come to the Lord before winter comes to us. And that if we haven't, done so, that we recognize that we're in autumn in one very, very crucial and real sense, regardless of age, because winter could come at any time. It comes sometimes in spring. It comes sometimes in summer. It doesn't always fall after the autumn years when the hairs are gray. If you haven't obeyed the gospel of Christ, you haven't come 
But winter hasn't come either for you. And thanks be to God that that is the case. Because if you haven't obeyed the gospel, you have at least this opportunity to do so. You have this opportunity to come before winter comes to you. How so? How can you do that? The only way anyone can, and that is by the simple teaching of the New Testament and the plan of salvation that is set forth therein. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but don't allow your belief to stop there because if it stops there and winter comes, according to Scripture, you'd be lost. Why? Because belief alone will not save. Jesus said, I, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. If winter comes and you haven't believed in me, you will die in your sins. But he also said, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If winter comes after you have believed but you haven't repented, Jesus says you perish eternally. And Jesus says, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father in heaven, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. And then Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. The only way to know you've come before winter is to believe, repent, confess Christ, and be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. Anything short of that means you haven't come to him and that winter could come to you at a time when you'd be un prepared for it. Some here may need to come home, may need to come back before winter comes. And for you it is a sobering matter indeed because remember Peter's words in 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22, that if we've escaped the defilement of the world, then we turn our backs upon the holy commandment once delivered. It's, it's like the dog turning to its own vomit again and the sow that was washed to its wallowing in the mire. Better never to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn your back upon the holy commandment once delivered. What a sobering, sobering statement that is. If you're away from the Lord and you haven't come home to Him and winter comes, your state would have been better, if you can believe it, never to have known than to have known and obeyed and turned away. Come back before winter. We're all in the autumn of our lives because autumn could end and winter could come at any time. Will you come before winter if that's your need as we stand together to sing?